It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Make the Dough Rise. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe. He is a certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, serving you in the Lake Country and beyond with an office in Greensboro, Georgia. Find us online at livingworth.com. I'm Walter Storholt. Glad you're with us today. And Brian, hope you've been well, my friend. Did you have a good uh, 4th of July? We had a blast. We covered a lot of ground, got to uh, spend some time with the in-laws, the outlaws, and uh, get in a couple extra naps. So I'm alive and alive and on fire here. The in-laws and the outlaws. And you were all mm-hmm. outlaws shooting fireworks off, for celebrating in style, right? Yeah, that's right. Me and my redneck friends got together and <laughs> blew up uh, an excessive amount of uh, gunpowder. Very nice. We uh, we were very low-key. Uh, Connie had worked uh, several days in a row and only had one day off and then was right back to the hospital the next day. Oh. And most of that day off, she had to spend prepping for her appointments then that following week. So it was a very low-key day. So uh, we were a little too tired to go out and check out one of the big fireworks shows. So I'd gotten as a backup plan a little uh, $10 box of uh, fireworks. Mm-hmm. It was it was three you know of the cylinders. And for 10 bucks, it was a pretty good show. Yeah, not know? bad, yeah. The, the entertainment only lasted about three minutes, but uh, it was... But economical. That's, it was very economical. Yeah. It provided us with a nice little, uh, nice little flair to, the, to end the day and the evening. And um, it was so loud. I was really impressed with how loud those little things were. I don't know if it was because we were just standing so close to them, but I felt like we were, despite booms going on all across the, the neighborhood and hearing them all over the place, I felt like in our quiet little street, we were like, you know, all of a sudden waking up all the neighbors, even though it was only you nine like a troublemaker. <laughs> I did. I felt like a little troublemaker. I was like, these were loud. <laughs> I guess it just, you know, the others were maybe several hundred or thousands of feet away. So then they felt softer by the time they got to you. But it was... Yeah. I felt like we got a good bang for our buck, so there you go. No pun intended or pun intended? Uh, a little bit of both. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a good show on the way today, and um, something I actually haven't heard of. I think I'm familiar with sort of the context and the idea behind it, but not in these specific terms that we're going to dive into in a few moments. And you probably saw the title of our show today, Politically Incorrect Guide to Investing. <laughs> and maybe you're going, uh-oh, what's this one going to be all about? Uh, I think it's going to be a really good conversation because it's something that you mentioned to me, Brian, in our uh, brief show prep before we started. This is rising in popularity or mm-hmm. something that you're getting more and more questions about. Is that right? Yeah. So it, last week I got a question from a, a younger colleague, someone who used to be an intern of mine and, and we work together at Merrill Lynch, but uh, she has her own firm now. And she said, what's, what's the deal with ESG? Do you use it or what do you think about it? And ESG stands for Environmental Sustainability and Governance. And it's a, it's a layer of criteria or, I, I guess, well-intentioned approach to investing. Like, I, I, I'm against pollution. So let, let, me, let, me just, let me just get the political incorrect uh, definition uh, out of the way here at first, too. I'm not for human rights abuses. I'm not for polluting the environment. I, I want prosperity for all. So I'm not against any of these things. But what has happened is we've morphed into a, I think, a, a well-intentioned, do-gooder approach to investing. Uh, and and I've, I'm trying to divine out where the origins of this are, but a lot of it has to do with uh, what we're seeing in the, the stuff that's coming out of the universities with the uh, gender equity, the the pay gap, and, and you're hearing a lot of things that are uh, based on a single variable. 
Okay, just they, they look at just gender, and then they run a, a pay analysis and say, oh, well, women make less than men. This is a systemically unfair system. Well, as it turns out, uh, there was a book written where they actually went and looked at if this idea of a pay gap was true, right? Because if, if women earn 78 cents on the dollar, what capitalist would not hire all women at 78 cents on the dollar and boost their uh, profit margins by, or, or reduce their cost overhead for employment by 22%. It, it, it was kind of an odd idea. Well, and so this, uh, Warren Farrell came out with a book and he did a multi-factor analysis. And it turns out there were probably about 18 to 20 different reasons, gender being one small part of it, why women earn less. And it had to do with they made more sensible life choices between work-life balance, the types of careers uh, they got into were uh, maybe more teaching or social counseling, uh, relationship, uh, compassionate nursing, uh, whereas men tended to, to gravitate towards other professions, maybe engineering and more uh, scientific things. And the research really shows this goes back to personality and interest difference differences between men and women. And, and the reason this becomes politically incorrect is because the prevailing concept is, is, oh, we're all equal. Every Women can do everything men can do and, and vice versa. And while that may be true, if you look at general populations, uh, men are less agreeable than women. And so there's an issue of, of negotiating and, and uh, asking for, for raises. Men are more assertive and, and disagreeable, which is a negative, it could be construed as a negative quality, but in the workplace, it, it translates into, into higher pay. So uh, when you looked at hours worked, occupation uh, chosen, maybe time off uh, for uh, having and raising children, when you neutralize for these multiple factors, gender turned out to be a very small part of the pay gap. And it's, it's not true that women doing the exact same job as, as a man is earning 78 cents on the dollar. So uh, I, I don't want to belabor that, but that's where this equity and of course, the environmental, climate change, sustainability, and then corporate governance holding, it's kind of a shareholder activism where we're going to say, we want to hold boards and management accountable for having the values that we as investors in their companies have. So ESG stands for environmental sustainability and governance. And I'm a bit of a cynic or skeptic on this topic and approach. And therefore, I will warn you if you are you know, prone to being sensitive to hearing a, uh, a cynical view on, on, on such a topic, you might want to stop the podcast right now. Well, let me, uh, let me play devil's advocate. Were you cynical of th things like from the past that seem to kind of fall in line or maybe were the predecessors of ESG uh, type investing? Like, um, what was it, the sin taxes in the, in the past? Like, what, what's, what's the origin of all this? Because certainly this isn't a new concept, right? Sure, sure. So th this really got its start back in the 80s because of apartheid in South Africa. And there was a, a, a huge movement for companies to divest from or you know, move out of South Africa because of their apartheid practices. And these, I mean, it was kind of a global phenomenon. A lot of companies, you had a lot of big multinational companies that were invested in and doing business in South Africa. And, and so there was boycotts called for these companies and it worked. And, and again, i I applaud that. That was a, a form of activism against a clearly you know, discriminatory and negative practice. 
and and it was very effective at at getting this uh, systemic change in in South Africa. So that was that was one of the big movements of uh, kind of a corporate activism pressure on on companies to change because of this. And then the the sister or cousin to this is uh, the exclusionary based on value. Uh, criteria for picking investments. And you have a lot of churches, uh, religious organizations, nonprofits, or just individuals that they don't want the sin stocks, you know, no alcohol, no tobacco. Uh, if you're against guns, you may not want, you know, guns or human rights abusers. We don't want particular countries in our portfolios that are, are, are prone to having, um, you know, human rights abuses. And then, of course, the big one now is is fossil fuels. We don't want Exxon's or, or Chevron, BP, because of the, 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 the carbon and, and carbon-based issue, that, uh, that, that could be a criteria for excluding a company. Now, I am all for coming up with a list that says, hey, I don't believe in these things, I'm opposed to them, and I don't want any of my capital allocated, and I don't want any of my profits to be derived from the activities of companies that I, I just I have a values issue against. All right, so that and I actually managed uh, back when I was at Merrill Lynch, I managed a, a insurance reserve account for uh, you know, one of the major religious de- denominations, and and they had these criteria. So there was lots of money and, and dividends to be had in Philip Morris, but they wanted no part of it because it was it was tobacco stock, uh, and and same with alcohol, and, and and so I can understand where those come from, but at the end of the day. You still had to go find companies and investments that met your return requirements, were able to pay the liabilities of this reserve fund. It was it was a self-insured system that they they had within the organization. So you you couldn't just sacrifice return for the sake of values. You ha- you had to do the extra work to then find the companies and and investment opportunities where you could get those positive returns. So it sounds like there's maybe two different styles of this uh, this values based investing or or the broader term that uh, we want to use here. One is about like an opinion or um, you know the, the exclusion of the business or the product itself or the, mm-hmm. the sector itself, where you're saying sort of this new flavor, sort of the ESG angle, while it may still have some elements of that, has also shifted a little bit to be about the makeup of the business itself itself or who's on the board. It's it's kind of taking into all these other factors that you can then exclude even more things from because you might say, um, hey, I'm against having the alcohol in my portfolio, but I love everybody that's on the board of that company. But still, it, it, it's it's on my no list just because it's alcohol. Or it could be the opposite. Hey, I'm a big fan of alcohol. <laughs> I'd love to invest right, in the right. sector, but there's not enough women on this company's board, so I can't support the company. Is that sort of the shift right. that we're seeing a little bit more? Yeah, so that that's the big shift uh, that's taking place. And the problem with it also becomes more and more this global supply chain that we have has blurred the lines geographically. You know, so again, if you're, if you're wanting to uh, make human rights a, a issue, you don't know a lot of times where parts or, or components of products that you're buying are sourced from unless you do some deep, deep research. And maybe you don't like the way Pakistan is treating, you know, if they have child labor issues or if they have gender equity issues. All of these things spill now out into a, a global perspective, and so I don't know how you really divine this all out to really say, well, just because the 
founding company, the, the parent company based in the United States, has all of these diversity numbers, ratios, quotas that, that we like, but yet they're, you know, they're sourcing all of their material from, from companies that don't support those same values. It's, it's very hard to say that you're, you're truly being, you know, exercising or, or demonstrating these values. And with the global supply chain, let's say if, if you're opposed to oil and fossil fuels, well, again, so much of this global sourcing, things are being shipped around the planet in tanker vessels and airplanes and things that are using fossil fuels. So uh, walking the walk becomes a lot harder than talking the, you know, the talk, and so to speak. Let me take just one second here to, to tell you one angle or development or turn that this took that I was very much in support of, and it would be called social capital. And have you ever heard you know, the term socially? No, social, social capital. Yes, social capital was kind of big, maybe, let's say, 10, 10 12 years ago. Uh, it had gotten its starts in things like microfinance, and uh, that, that actually started in, in uh, Bangladesh with the, the Grameen Bank. And basically, a lot of poor people are shut out of the financial system because they don't have access to capital. They, they can't walk into a bank and open an account and or make a loan or anything like that because they don't have any collateral. And so it was a sort of a hybrid between for-profit and non-profit, where they said, we're not out to make the biggest profit, but we do want to implement a social change. We want to lift up a group of people, and, and they made capital available to you know, the world's unbanked, you know, the, the world's poor. And that really uh, was able to, to make a positive impact because a lot of women in, in some of these less developed countries could actually go start little side businesses. They could buy the supplies they needed to, you know, make some clothing or, or weave baskets or just any number of little things, start, start a, a garden or, or a produce type thing. So a lot of good stories came out of that. And then that grew into creating products and, and market driven solutions for We'll call it the next billion. There's a billion people that are moving up out of poverty and beginning to enter the you know, kind of the lower ends of what we would call the middle class or certainly middle class by, by, by developing country standards. And so a lot of money, and it was usually wealthier individuals, large corporations that had maybe a donation or, or an arm that sponsored and, and fostered some of these innovations. And, and some good examples would be uh, bringing lighting to a poor community. Well, running the electric grid into a uh, rural community in, in India might be quite expensive and difficult, massive amounts of bureaucracy, it's not going to happen. And so the bypass was to create a lighting system that had a, a little battery pack to it that they could set out by day and then by night, instead of burning kerosene lanterns and inhaling the fumes from that and having the fire risk associated with that, they came up with a product that was affordable and comparable on a cost basis to buying all the kerosene fuel where people could have lighting indoors at night. And then that made it easier for the children to study and read and do their homework uh, and maybe even continue working uh, in, in the darker times of the month uh, of the years when, when there's less sunlight. There were some really good things happening in this social capital space. Let's, let's bring this back to the ESG, socially responsible investing. And what I'm seeing is it's getting more political and you know, maybe aligned more with, with, with certain progressive campaigns or movements, climate change, 
uh, gender equity. And really, at the end of the day, the, the rules for investing are the same. Is your product better and cheaper? That, that has been the rule of, of venture capital investing and uh, innovation as, as long as, as you can go back and, and measure. But if you start adding in non-financial data, okay, we're, we're looking at most companies based on growth, dividends, profitability, all, all of the usual financial metrics that you would, you would want to look at. Well, this ESG investing starts looking at non-financial data, okay? If it's environment, maybe how much water are you using? Are you, are you polluting water? If it's worker safety, you know, what, what are your safety statistics? What uh, are you spending and putting on, onto uh, safety in the, in the work environment? It could be an environmental measurement, how much pollution or carbon you're, you're generating. This begins to spill into the other acronym that we're hearing a lot of these days called diversity, equity, and inclusion. Or I guess if you, if you say diversity, inclusion, and equity, it's, it could be a die. And I really think if you're focused on these as your criteria for good investments, you're not necessarily going to have the types of returns simply because you have increased diversity or you're more inclusive. What does inclusive mean? And uh, equity is the one I have the most trouble with because equity, in as I've looked at these programs and metrics, they're looking for not equality of opportunity, right? I'm all for equality of opportunity, but they're looking for equity of outcomes. And the simple fact of the matter is, the more you attempt to make societies free, egalitarian, and, and open, the, the personality differences that I, I mentioned earlier will actually amplify while I'm a advocate for fairness and uh, equal opportunity, and I don't like, I hate cronyism and uh, clubby exclusionary type organizations as much as anyone. I don't think we should be looking to invest or, or forcing upon companies th- this idea of, of diversity, inclusion, equity. It, it, it's really a, a slippery slope because I've seen... Gosh, I, I hate uh, I hate to sound politically incorrect here, but I think we've already put out that warning. But well, it, is you the see name lot, of the, it is the name of the show yeah. today. So. <laughs> you see a lot of companies hiring a diversity uh, officer, and, and you see this a lot in universities as well. And so you've got somebody earning hundreds of thousands of dollars whose job is it, it is to promote diversity. And uh, I know Morgan Stanley gotten you know had had somebody in that position, and they for whatever reason I, I'd have to go back and look at the details of it. But they ended up firing the person and then getting sued for, for racism. So did, did this diversity initiative really uh, accomplish what, what they were trying to accomplish? Well, to me, as an investor, a company should be trying to you know, certainly be fair, uh, include the, and, and seek out the best and most qualified individuals for the job and produce the best results for me as a shareholder. And then if I want to you know, invest or, or not invest in, in a, a certain sector, I, I would leave that up to uh, the investor. So it sounds like it's not so much the concern over the, the reason why somebody would want to include or exclude a company, because that's been around for a long time. It's just, are we then losing sight of the fundamentals and the, the financial data that goes into making sense of whether that's a good investment or not? That's the 
that's the deeper concern is, hey, I like this company because they have X, and so boom, I'm going to invest in them no matter what. But hey, they may have terrible financials to back or back that up or other reasons like that. Yeah, precisely. So if you look at Kathy Wood's uh, ARC funds, they've done fantastic. And so I've, I've been investing in them. But is it because she's a woman or is it because she's got phenomenal results? I don't care what gender she is. I love the results. And, and so I've been investing in her funds. And then I saw an article the other day that she was uh, allocating or, or adding Twitter to one of the funds. I was more opposed to her adding Twitter to the fund because I think Twitter is the scourge of society. It's just a, a horrible, horrible uh, cesspool of you know, toxic debate and name calling and, and arguing and fighting that's actually making life worse on the planet. So I don't I think I've more... ever left checking Twitter um, in a good mood. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, uh, I post some things it's, to Twitter. It's very just... much like a, an abusive relationship. Like you, you, you leave checking Twitter to go, why, why do I keep doing this? Right, why, right. Why do I keep coming back? Yeah, I, I think Twitter needs to be, you know, just starved out of existence but uh i post a few things there just to have it as an archive at least instagram has pretty pictures (laughs) precisely right i don't know where you draw the line on those either so and and you know if you look at uh other companies i mean costco and chick-fil-a are are two good examples of companies that actually overpay or, or pay above market rates and uh you know they're they've made fair and equitable compensation a priority for their company. And if they're able to run a better offering and, you know, better chicken sandwich or better, you know, price on things and their employees are happier, then, you know, by all means, find, find the companies that are doing things like that and support them. And, and actually I looked at the, so Main Street Financial Solutions is the, the firm that I'm a member of. Uh, we got a $1.7 billion firm. And of the 23 advisors that we have at at Main Street, seven are women. So we're, we're 30% female at Main Street Financial Solutions. Did I come here because of that? Do I think that that's one of our strategic advantage? No, no, they're, they're just good people with the proper discipline and w- uh, good credentials and do the right thing for their client. It, it doesn't matter what gender or, or color or, or size or shape they are. So then, then by contrast, I was listening to a fund manager who was bragging because she was a owner or one of the owners of a woman founded and 100% women owned investment management firm that specialized in ESG investing. So they had all these criteria for diversity, inclusion, and and equity, but yet they were simultaneously bragging about being a 100% woman owned. So um, good for her. I think if you've got a better idea and can get a better result, go for it, prove it, and uh, let the results speak for yourself. But I'm not going to invest in or not invest in something because of uh, the gender makeup. I'm a big fan of the social capital where it is truly being used to come up with innovative solutions with a little bit less of a focus on profitability. You do want to be profitable, but it's not the same ruthless uh, capitalistic criteria that you might have with a publicly traded company. But I'm most skeptical of these big companies coming out and promoting their ESG funds. And when you see the likes, I'm not even going to name names, but but big, big firms that are in the investment management business, call me a cynic, but I think they are just capitalizing on the fad and the trend 
of, you know, say, oh, I want to be environmental, uh, sustainable, uh, in corporate governance. Yes, I, I want to have, I want to invest in something that, uh, that has some kind of filter or screen for those criteria. What you're going to end up with is a fund that is more expensive. And the more expensive the fund, the lower the returns that you're going to get. And I don't know, maybe the data will come out one day that says, you know, truly diverse boards and management and, and staffs are, uh, you know, somehow produce better results. But again, I'm going to go back to my, my global supply chain, things being produced in Japan and China and India. And th those are not as diverse of populations ethnically or, and, and certainly the gender issues in those countries. This is, this is a way bigger problem than just the United States or Europe or Canada. And I would say we're doing a pretty good job uh, here in the U.S., Canada, Europe already in making great strides in, in, in being more egalitarian. So be careful of getting caught up in the feel good because it is going to be expensive. You'll get lower rates of return. If you want to do good, you know, you know use your exclusionary uh, filters, but don't dig into or fall into the hype. Take your profits, donate your time and your money to causes that you believe in and have the, this impact uh, specifically that you want to have would be my advice. At the end of the day, no, uh, no person is perfect. And I think no, uh, no company is going to be perfect either. I think we could put so many constraints and find so many faults in every company in the way that they do things and how they're structured and the makeup. At some point, you're, you're not going to have anybody left to invest in because you're going to be able to find something wrong with everybody out there. That's so. true. That's very true. Stick to stick to the you know the big things that you believe in and um, you know but sometimes we have to maybe forgive if things aren't perfect <laughs> all the all the way around and uh, you know I, I like your kind of uh, ending thought there uh, focus on what you can do then individually and and more hands on with you know, what, what, what was time the what, what was the big expression back when uh, I think globalism or multiculturalism was the the big push back in the nineties and it was think globally act locally. I think that's as true today as ever. You know, what, what impact is all this having on, you know, the planet, humanity, and then how can I act locally uh, to get the best result? Hmm. And uh, a good example of that would be in the, like, if you want organic foods, well, which is better, a locally grown, maybe not 100% organic food, but, but, you know, generally better than than uh, factory farm processes or something organic flown in from south america where they've they've burned a massive amount of carbon to to, to get you this organic uh food to, delivered to your local supermarket so there's just there's lots of things that we can do that uh, can have a positive impact lots of little examples like that we could pull out certainly so good discussion today interesting uh kind of angles to approach here and to look at the history of some of this type of investing and this evaluation as well hopefully this helps some folks out if you have questions about how to plan for your financial future for retirement doesn't have to necessarily be about this uh, esg topic or uh, some of the other things we talked about today but maybe some other element of your financial plan uh please feel free to call today for a 15-minute introductory uh, review with Brian and see how you can get some clarity around the different financial goals that you have so you can live the retirement and the uh, lifestyle you want and get to help the loved ones in your life to do the same. Uh, you can certainly uh, bring the whole family in for planning with Brian Doe and the team at Living Worth Wealth Advisors. So if you want to book that 15-minute introductory call, all you have to do is go to livingworth.com and click on book a call. That's livingworth.com. Click book a call. 
or dial 706-451-9800. Brian, thanks for the help. Enjoy the conversation with you today, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Sounds great. Thanks, Walter. All right. Thanks a lot. That's Brian Doe and Walter Storholt. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Make the Doe Rise. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.